0: the director behind the hilarious Lego Batman movie, the popular series Robot Chicken, as well as the films The Tomorrow War, starring Chris Pratt for Prime, and the brand new Renfield with Nicholas Holt and Nicolas Cage. This week, I am so pleased to welcome filmmaker Chris McKay to the podcast. So how are you doing? And how has this year been going for you so far?
1: It's so far so good. Thanks, Jen. I, um, I, uh, yeah, things have been going really good. You know, I had the movie come out and, um, it's been a lot of fun to see audiences, uh, love Cage and love, uh, Nick Holt and, and love the practical effects and things like that that we did in the movie. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun to, to kind of see, see the audience, uh, find the movie.
0: Yeah, congratulations. I was a huge fan of the Lego Batman movie. I thought it was really <laughs> fresh, fun, hilarious. And I just saw Renfield, which I know was actually chosen as the closing night film here at the Phoenix Film Festival. Yeah, uh, But I didn't see it there, but I just saw it. And it's, it's a blast. I mean, it's really irreverent. It's spirited, creative. It looks like it was so much fun to make. So talk to me about the movie and what collaborating with that cast and crew was like.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You know, um, uh, when I read the script, the only person I saw for Renfield was Nick Holt. I thought the only way the movie could work was 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 with Nick, just because he's a guy who's who's unafraid to. uh, He's 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 incredibly vulnerable. He's so open. There's he he lets you in. There's no walls up. You know, he lets you into his. You know, behind his eyes, you see everything that's going on with him. Um, he's unafraid to try things, to be strange, to be to 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 flirt with characters that are unlikable, um, mm-hmm. or to or aren't cool or any you know like he's he's got he's just he's just a really engaging. I find him to be incredibly engaging, um, and um, I think he's you know audiences really want to root for him. You know, no yeah. matter how, you know the War Boy in, in Fury Road, like you know the way he just made that character somebody you just really cared about by the end of the movie that to me is just like he's so good warm bodies like just everything the menu like he's um in the great obviously like he's so good and cage um i didn't think the studio was going to be into cage uh i just i just thought that you know they wanted you know the, the names they were bringing up just didn't seem like they were going to you know go for <laughs> nick but they really uh they really liked uh cage for dracula and um, he did not disappoint. I mean, he's a really wonderful, um, he's just one of those guys who just like, he's, he never lost that enthusiasm for making movies, no matter how, many, how much he's done. Every day on set, he's just, he really, it really is ready to play, super inventive. Um, and he, he really um, just kind of loves creating characters and making movies. And he loves Dracula. He loves horror movies. He loves Christopher Lee. He's a huge Christopher Lee fan. Uh, the Hammer uh, horror movies were kind of his first exposure to all of those characters to Dracula and his dad, um, who he sort of based his performance a little bit on his father. Wow!
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a big influence on him. His father was um, a literature uh, professor and yes. obviously a Coppola. Um, and he, um, a lot of his mannerisms and even the voice, his voice, that, that, that sort of like uh, a mid-Atlantic thing that he was doing is based very much on what how his father talked. His father wanted to sound like, you know, up, you know, sort of upper class and intelligent and yeah. that sort of thing. And uh, but uh but his father showed him uh Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu when, when Nick was like five years old. So I think that left it, obviously an incredible uh impression on him. Uh yeah. you can see in his performances, the way he uses his body, the way he uses his hands. We're when he's playing Dracula, he's playing a lot of the other characters, the way he just uses everything. He loves mm-hmm. silent movie acting. And um, and he was just a guy who just like he was, you know, he would he just he threw himself into everything we we're doing. And one of his the if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing is one of his favorite quotes.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, he's not afraid to go big. Yeah.
1: No, he's it's like no, goes no, he's not. big and,
0: for reasons. Yes.
1: Yes, and he makes a he makes, you know, he he. He also finds humanity in all of his characters. I think that's something you can say across because he's been, whether it's whether it's you know gigantic you know action movie blockbuster big Hollywood movies National Treasure of The Rock all that all that other stuff, or you know avant garde indie movies and Herzog mm-hmm. movies and everything else, um, or when he's doing romantic comedies and he, whether it's Moonstruck or It Could Happen to You, um, he finds. He he just finds something. He's really good at identifying tone and playing with the tone of the movie, um, playing to the tone of the movie. And he's also really good at just finding, finding humanity, teach to teach to the characters that that he creates. And and I think that's such a gift. I mean, there's a movie that he did. It's a remake of uh, Kiss of Death. Um, it's a mid '90s. Oh my movie. gosh,
0: it's great, right? Yeah. I don't like the taste yeah, of metal yeah. in my mouth. That whole thing. Yeah, again. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he was but you know, and I think the character's name was little bill something like that, but um but uh he was this very dangerous guy and obviously this was Nick Cage in his prime and he was really like jacked up in that movie, but he also but he he had a he had a puffer because he was an asthmatic. And mm-hmm. so you have this really in, intense guy who's constantly needs this thing and so he's always like he's 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 always creating that that dichotomy between, you know, uh, and that contrast between somebody who's you know big and strong and powerful and scary um, and menacing, and then but somebody who is also just really frail and fragile and just had you know just has a, like I said, he has a humanity to him. He's he's just he's really great at, at making those those choices. And so yeah, so he was perfect for Dracula, and Aquafina was great, and, um, and I loved
0: her. You know, I a, yeah,
1: yeah. She was a lot of fun and she hadn't done a lot of stuff like that before. So no. you know, put her through the you know, gun training and, and stunt training and that sort of thing. And I like doing like practical stuff, I like, you know, doing practical, uh, stunt work and, and, you know, making things feel kind of brutal at times. And, and, um, and he, uh, Chris Brewster, who's our, who's the stunt coordinator and second year director. He came in, he had a lot of, you know, he and I talked about Jackie Chan. We talked about a lot of, you know, having a point to all the action scenes and what the purpose mm-hmm. was and that, that they shouldn't overstay their welcome and um, that they needed to be about the character or the or the plot of the story and um, and trying to find really fun. You know, I wanted to, you know, kind of, you know, a uh, big Sam Raimi fan, um, or early Peter Jackson, that kind of splatstick humor. I wanted to make sure that the, there was always something humorous about the, fight scenes at times uh and so um I, I had a really good crew My production designer alec hammond lisa lavas who did the wonderful costumes um uh jamie price who did the visual effects christian tinsley who did all the practical effects mm-hmm. of the makeup practical makeup effects you know um yeah. you know every everybody i just had a really wonderful uh you know really really wonderful crew. was really really lucky uh, to, to To shoot uh, in New Orleans with this great crew.
0: Well, you told me how Nicolas Cage got into movies with Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and those films he saw very young. But what first got you into film?
1: I, um, uh, I, I my mom. My mom oh, that's was great. somebody who, um, really loved movies and, um, and loved reading. Um, yeah. and so I, um, and because I didn't have, we didn't have like a, a VCR or cable mm-hmm. or things like that for for a long time. We're growing up. I would either go see movies at the movie theater, or I would go and read about movies in the library because we went to the library a lot. So, um, so I so I read books about movies and and filmmakers and got really hungry uh, to, to made a list of movies that I wanted to see, Hitchcock movies and things like that, and I. Was fortunate that when I went to high school, um, one of my te- one English teacher that I had um, also taught a film class, and so I got to see The Searchers. I got to see Albert Hitchcock's Notorious. I got oh, to wow. see um, Seven Samurai, all projected, um, sixteen millimeter projected, and so um, um, and we were breaking out. We'd watch an hour of it in class, and then you'd come back you know, next week and see the next hour or whatever, um, and. Uh, uh, it was really uh re- really great to be able to see that. for some reason watch Dirty Harry. I remember watching that um uh in that class, but notorious made it, it was a huge um in the way that the the Bud Bedecker movies uh, made an impression on me. Notorious made a huge impression on me because it was such economical storytelling. Mm-hmm. And um, and, I, and my mom was a big Hitchcock. She would talk and she would talk to me about her experiences watching these movies like as a little girl going to see a Hitchcock movie going to see Psycho or going to see something and um and she talked to me about what that you know what you know, how the, the excitement of going to see these movies and uh, that that sort of thing it's that got me hooked and she was a big Oscar watcher we watch the Oscars every year so we you know and talk about you know whatever movies that she had seen because some of these movies I had not you know mm-hmm. I wasn't old enough to watch and that sort of thing so um so yeah so it was her love of movies that kind of got me into it, and then and then it was um, a lifetime of going to see movies in the movie theater, whether it was Bambi, or Spielberg movies, or Lucas movies, or Superman, or or you know James Cameron, and then ultimately like '90s indie movies, whether it's was Allison Anders mm-hmm. and, and you know um, uh, Lodge Carrigan, you know, and just like you know I was Tarantino and David Fincher, and you know you know uh, uh, you know all of these filmmakers. Um, they all kind of you know made me. I went to school for film. I went to Southern Illinois University at Carbondale for two years. And then I went to Columbia College, and um, and and yeah, I got to see um, I got to see lots of lots of films because even when I was a kid, I would you know because I grew up outside of Chicago, and I I would as soon as I got a driver's license, I would drive into the city and go go see as many movies as I could, you know, uh, whatever mm-hmm. whatever the new what are the movie I was reading about that was playing there. And then yeah, I'd go see it or I'd go see retrospective stuff at the music box and that kind of thing. So yeah, I was, I, I was, I was a film junkie from, from very early on.
0: Yeah. Same thing. I kind of got into movies because of my mom. She worked in a library and bring movies home all the time and yeah, I grew up loving Hitchcock, same exact thing. And I remember the first week I got a driver's license where I wanted to go more than anything. is like I wanted to be able to get in the car and go to the movie theater and not depend on my brother or my friends or anybody. And so, yeah, absolutely. And your background and these movies were pretty much live action. And then you wound up in animation. So what was the biggest surprise for you? Did you have a few surprises creatively? And how did
1: that help you? Yeah, I well, I I. Um... I guess I'd always had a love, you know. What since watching like the Disney movies when I was a kid, I always had a love for animation. And I, um, I even remember like um, when I was really young, taking like a girl on a date to see Toy Story, and like that, you know, it was like you know a really impressive (laughs) date. But I was like, I've got to see this movie. You know, heard so much about it. Um, And and uh, so I so I was just very fortunate to get into to animation. I I I knew I knew something. You know, I'd mostly done live action, uh, as a, as, as a career, I had done a lot of live action stuff and news stuff. And and I did documentaries and things like that. And then I got a job working, um, on robot chicken as the editor. And I knew, you know, just sort of just enough to be dangerous about stop motion and animation and, uh, things like that. And I worked in the post-production department, but, but because I had all this practical, mm-hmm. um, filmmaking experience and producing experience and directing experience um and and stop motion unlike other animation is o- o- almost as much like live action as it's animation because you have to build or find everything you're going to put on screen um and you can't you can't draw your way out of a problem you can't you can't computer your way out of a problem you have to figure it out practically so um so, so I, I, uh, I, I kind of rose up from from being editor to being a producer and director on that show for five for the first five seasons, and um, and it's probably because I, you know, when I was doing a lot of low budget stuff, I you, you learn to problem solve, and I, you know, that's kind of my my uh, the, the thing that was always my saving grace was that I, I was very good at looking at situations and figuring ways creative solutions to uh our problems and trying to give everything as much scope and as much production value as humanly possible um and then um i got a job on the lego movie working with, with chris miller and phil lord and mm-hmm. um because of my stop motion experience was one of the reasons why they hired me and they were kind of off doing um 21 jump street and i uh my job was to basically the, the movie had lost its green light my job was to come in and, and convince the studio to uh re-green light the movie and so i pitched um Pitch how we're going to do it and the style and stuff like that. And, and, um uh, and, and, uh, Christopher really liked working with me. And so they, they gave me Lego Batman, which is obviously him a huge comic book guy <laughs> as like, growing up as a kid. And, uh, uh, so, so yeah, to be able to do Lego Batman and, and have as much fun with it and be allowed to do all the, that stuff and work with, you know, Will Arnett and Zach galifianakis and Rosario Dawson and Ray Fines and, you know, just had a, Michael Sarah just had a really, lovely cast and, and, and again, a great crew. And uh, I, I did the Lego movie and Lego Batman in uh, Australia and in, in Sydney. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. So I was, I was in, I was back and forth between Los Angeles and Sydney for about six years and, um, and that's <laughs> what, yeah. Cause it takes a long time to make uh, the Lego movies. Like I was on that movie for almost four years and, and, and Lego Batman was about two years. And so, yeah. So, so, um worked with a really great crew at Animalogic, really fun animators. then they they employed animators around the world um, there. And that was that was a lot of fun to make those movies. Well,
0: it's cool you started in editing, basically. Like that was kind of um, where you got your entryway because Bud Budaker, when I was doing some research, said that learning from an editor is what taught him the building blocks of storytelling. That in the 40s, yeah. I can't remember which picture. Uh, a woman showed him the ropes on you know this is why we put it together this way and what you can leave on the cutting room floor but just how to assemble a film and how to yeah. tell a story economically and it wound up really helping him when he got into the period where he had to make a movie in like 10 or 12 days for sure
1: yeah it's cr- yeah it's yeah crazy how fast they had to make those movies
0: i know yeah, that's nuts. that's your handle so tell me when did the bud editor <laughs> uh, love start for you?
1: Um when I was in Chicago the um the Siskel Center did a lot um they they had a lot of uh, movies that um had been restored they play a lot of movies that had been restored and I saw the I saw a really beautiful print of John Carpenter's the thing there that was blown away by cuz I'd only ever seen that movie on VHS and um and uh or maybe DVD but um uh I was just it was blown away by the clarity but um uh i remember um I, I was i remember hearing about bud bedeker from that martin scorsese history of the movies uh dvds oh, the, at the BFI. personal
0: journey i love yeah
1: that. yeah i still yeah. have it somewhere I, and love so it. He, I know it's like it's like a reference it's like a piece of reference yeah. that i always have like on my bookshelf because it's it's and they and they did a he did a they did a book uh, uh of yeah. it too uh, uh, um but um I, I remember seeing where we talked about people like Anthony Mann and Bud Bedecker, and I was fascinated with, and Bud, Bud Bedecker's movies seemed very hard to find because mm-hmm. um, they weren't on Criterion, unlike Anthony Mann's, you know, were, were on Criterion and that sort of thing. And and they were playing seven men from now. There was, there was a restoration of seven men from now and, and it was only going to play for like a, a night or something like that. And so I went um, I went down to the Cisco center to go, to go see it. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't know where it stood. I didn't, I didn't know anything, you know, where it stood in his, his, you know, his, his filmmaking filmography. Um, and I, you know, from the opening scene, I was just, you know, I was just riveted. You know, he, he starts so deep into the story and mm-hmm. this, the the way, the way the movie looked, this, that, that, op- that set, uh, that they're on in the opening is, is so well. Uh, I just, I love that set. I love the way it's lit, you know, cause a lot of these mm-hmm. movies they do day for night. So to actually see a scene that's, you know, supposedly takes place at night and is done so well. And then it's just the dialogue was so crisp and, you know, filled with lots of things beyond the edges of the frame. Yeah. Um, and that, that was, was really exciting about it. And, uh, and yeah I was just hooked in uh, you know and I, I and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about that one um because I think it's so you know it's hard to it's hard to find but it is worth people checking out because it's such a good and it and it's you know it, it feels like you know since that was the first one of the that's collaboration a
0: good starting point yeah yeah
1: yeah uh, it, it, but and it, it also like there's so many lines and ideas and things <laughs> like that that have been used From that movie throughout the rest of the movies, it's really funny to trace all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the villains being, you know, as interesting, if not more More, interesting than uh, the character played by Randolph Scott. I love that beginning that you brought up. We should probably just dive right into Seven Men from now because, you know, it cuts away from the action. We don't really see him draw down or anything. I mean, you just see the next shot. And then, like, later on the showdown with uh, Lee Marvin, you don't actually see the quick draw Uh, play out just you see lee's death and i think he called it one of the two or three best death scenes that he ever had was in seven men from now so that stands pretty tall because lee marvin got killed a lot uh, sorry. <laughs> And yeah. uh I love the dialogue. Of course, burt Kennedy wrote the yeah. script for this and the films that we're talking about today. Um, you know, it has some of those great moments like, you know, I'd hate to have to kill you. I'd hate to have hate hey. to have you try. Something yeah, yeah. like that. And it's, you know, Lee Marvin's delivery. Um yeah, so I loved it. I think this might have been it was either this film or Tall T, which was the first one for that sure. I ever saw. Uh Bettiker pictures. I, for whatever reason, I loved westerns, but I didn't get around to it until maybe because they are hard to find. Um, the Criterion Channel did that retrospective yeah. a few years ago, and that's when I saw these and wanted to go seek out as many other Bettikers as I could.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know the the you know the thing you're talking about. You know the collaboration between Burt Kennedy, Randolph Scott, Bud Bettiker the, you know, the three of them and then Harry, Joe Brown, who comes in later and Charles Lawton, the DP who didn't do, uh, didn't do seven men for now, but then did all the subsequent movies. Um, Mm -hmm. the collaboration between all of those guys, um, is really, uh, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a team effort because when you look at, when you look at, you know, um, uh, uh, Buchanan rides alone, or Decision at Sundown. When you look at the movies that we're not talking about, mm-hmm. there is a distinct that a distinct difference in the story economics, and yep. in, in the in the in, in a lot of even the framing choices and, and things like that. The way it's put together, editorial shot selection mm-hmm. choices, and things like that. It's there is a big it's a big it's a big um quality difference in, in my mind and yeah. and it feels like in those other movies they don't really even know how to use like Randolph Scott and Randolph Scott sometimes seems at sea. So it mm-hmm. is so even though I I like I think that he's an amazing director. you know, directors don't directors don't stand alone. they need you know yes. we're, we're in the middle of the strike right now and it's, it's like you need brilliant writing. You know, you absolutely, you know, need the writers. Um, writers is where everything starts. And and when you look at look at how brilliant and how much they how much these other movies lift off the screen, how much Seven Men from Now, Tall T, Ride Lonesome, Comanche Station lift off the screen, and 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 Randall Scott's character lifts off the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and 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 like you said, it's also about how compelling these these bad guys are because they are so good. Lee Marvin in seven men from now is so modern. Like his performance is, is in such great contrast. Mm-hmm. Randall Scott, who's very stoic and, you know, you, you know, he represents you know, a certain kind of masculinity and a certain kind. I mean, this, that, this, this movie is, you know, seven men from now was meant for John Wayne originally. Yeah. Um, it was produced by John Wayne's company. And, um, and, and, He's so stoic and he's so, he's kind and he represents a certain, you know, chivalry and a certain value system and honor and a code and all that kind of thing. But Mar- Lee Marvin comes in and he is so like just him saying that pow that he does. He's constantly yes. doing the draws throughout the whole movie. He does the pow thing, that massive green scarf that he has mm-hmm. that's just like blowing in the wind. It's so, um, in some ways, it's a very like you know androgynous character. In some ways, even though he's obviously clearly, and, and I guess I should also say to people who are you know maybe going to watch these movies, keep in mind these movies are seventy years old. Yeah, they are they're they're filled with misogyny. They were filled. there, you know there's 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 some lots of lots of things that we you know would not would don't that don't fit in our in our world today uh, anymore. Um, mm-hmm. um. But but they are they are really wonderful movies if you want to study really great um storytelling really compact storytelling the amount of stuff that they get into you know what in general are about 100 or you know uh 90 you know they're sometimes less than 90 minutes they're they're you know like yeah i think
0: 78 is like the longest of them and it's crazy yeah Yeah. i love that yeah yeah and um you know as far as There's economical writing, but also I know that Vedeker didn't like the phrase psychological Western, but these are very much. You have characters who are talking around uh, what they really mean. And there's a really famous uh, sequence in here where Lee Marvin does just that. And uh, it kind of is a Howard Hawks thing. You know, he liked the three cushion dialogue that goes around what he wanted to say and then, you know, gets there eventually and that is what happens here in seven men from now um i think randall scott is so good because he he is a stand-in for John Wayne, like what you were saying exactly. I remember reading that John Wayne didn't really think much of the script initially, but it was when Robert Mitchum read it and then was interested. then then Wayne thought, okay,
1: there's something here.
0: <laughs> and so it was a little possessive. But also what was really funny is they said, well, if it's not you, who should be in it? And he said, uh, Randolph Scott, because he's, he's through. And uh, that was the way he phrased wow. it. And he is 57 here. But he was done. He was 60. But he's amazing. And he does some of his own stunt work in these movies, like getting dragged uh, from wagons. And I guess he was a very, um, you know, regal, southern, proper gentleman who loved reading Wall Street Journal. He died with like over 100 million dollars because he made so many savvy business investments. Like, Yeah, he didn't really fit in with the rough and tumble West. But he was willing to do it, and these are some of the best films of his career. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, these things are miles apart from the other stuff that he did. And and, I, and at first, I think you know, when I first that when I watched Seven Men from Now, when he you know in that first scene, I I wasn't a hundred percent sure I was on board with him. There's something you know when when he, when he says to the one guy, "Watch a hurry," and he's always he does <laughs> like they're like rip out these like you know rat a tat tat. Uh, you know, change, you know change direction uh tonally um mm-hmm. uh as a performer and i wasn't sure i was like oh i don't know if i'm gonna like this guy i'm not sure if this, is <laughs> this might feel too might feel too old or something too you know um yeah, he's pretty just, stoic got, and yeah 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 he doesn't yeah. let you in but in a but in a really great way and i think that's why the ones where he is haunted where there's something that's that drove him before the movie starts. There's something beyond the edges of the frame,
0: mm-hmm. beyond
1: the beginning of the film. There's something that drove him here. That's the one that are really, that's the ones that are really great because he. That's what he excels at. It's like yeah. you gotta, gotta like somehow like crack him open because he's so stoic and so you know all of his walls are up and he's got that great, you know Remington painting esque face. Um, it's all the lines and just, it's just like, you know, he looks like an Easter Island, you know, <laughs> statue. Like he's just, it's so, uh he becomes really watchable and he's obviously just super, you know, super handsome guy for his age. And mm-hmm. it's just like, he's he's just, he is so watchable and he is good on a horse. Like he, I know, I don't know if he had horse training, you know, prior to these movies, but he was, just seems so natural. And you can see it, you can see some of the, some of the, just some of the wides where you see him, it's still him on the horse is not a double. And he's, uh, you know, he's really like, really like muscling the, you know, like that when he's, when he's helping the the Greers out of the mud thing and you see him handling the, 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 the reins of the horse that's on the team and his mm-hmm. own horse. And he's really doing it. I was really like constantly, you know, constantly impressed with a lot of really all that even, some of the side actors are doing great stuff where they're jumping off of horses, hitting their marks and things like that. Cause again, there's not a lot of close-ups. There's not a lot of coverage. I mean, they're really like, they're shooting these things in 12 or 14 days. Like there's not a lot of time. It's like, you got to hit, you got to do a lot of masters and, and, you know, have these guys, you know, um, really, you know, nail it in a couple of takes. And it's, that's, you know, I'm, I was constantly impressed, especially watching them because I watched them all back to back. And oh, watching wow. them back to back, you really see like just like a. You see a lot of obviously where some of the they're drawing, pull, they're pulling things from other movies and uh, lines of dialogue and ideas and things like that. But you're also seeing just like how how smartly produced these movies are, and and, and again how everybody's just like jumping, everybody's doing their own, you know, some of their own stunts and, and that kind of thing. Uh, that's great. I, I I Gail Russell. I was thinking about you know the. Uh, her performance in this movie was something i was really charmed by and rem- i remember yeah. thinking that you know the two of them together i was really charmed by and even like her l- little pratfall that she does in the mud at the beginning it's so it's just it, it's it's so i mean she's so cute and so charming and she gets that little bit of mud on her face and um and she had such a rough life. I don't know if you did any background. Yes,
0: yeah, she was cited in the John Wayne divorce and alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Had a rough time. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. She she had a rough time, a rough you know career, but she's so there's just such a charm to her. She's really, really compelling. And she's got those obviously you know big blue eyes. And mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I loved her. And I loved I, I I loved her and and Randall Scott together. And I think the thing that Seven Men from Now does really well when you look at it structurally is that it really does a great job of teasing out Randolph Scott's backstory and using her as that. this constant check in to get a new piece of the story. You know, the Marvin says something and then we get a little bit more shade, you know, a little more color on that story as, as it goes on. And it's really their, their sort of quasi friendship romance, um, her, you know, their longing for each other is really, really well handled. And I would say that there's, you know, there's there, all of these guys. When you look at all of these movies, they're all, all of them are a little bit, you know, whether it's Lee Marvin is, is in love with Gail Russell, you know, Claude Akins is in love with, you know, Nancy Gates and Comanche station. They all, they all have, you know, they all have a lot of, uh, you know, they, they, they may, they may not be coming in from a completely honorable place, but they're all like fascinated, and you know there are all these lonely guys that are fascinated by these women, and, and I think, like you said, he, uh, Bud Betteker may not think that he's you know he's certainly not necessarily doing Anthony Mann psychological westerns, but all of there is a lot going on here about mm-hmm. loneliness, a lot going on here about like honor, about whether people can change or not. I think that's a theme that keeps coming oh, yeah. up, and um, mm-hmm. in 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 all of them, and it you know hits its sort of you know peak in in Manchi Station, but. That, that, that that's you know I think you know I think it's one of those things where I think as a filmmaker sometimes you don't always maybe you don't always have I think that's why people like David Lynch don't like to talk about their movies is because I think that they don't always you know they, I think they don't they, they want the audience to sort of like yeah uh,
0: puzzle it out you know, yeah yeah
1: yeah and and I don't think they're always I mean you know maybe David Lynch is but he's he's coy but like I think there's also people like you know Bud Bedecker who may not um may Not exactly know 100% all the things that are going on because I mean, he is. I mean, but Bedecker's life was crazy. And oh, yeah, uh, especially the last, you know, 10 years of his life or so. Like mm-hmm. that guy was definitely like a throwback to a certain kind of a certain kind of man, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you talked about how like they're economically edited and he kind of was scared into doing that not only because of the truncated shooting schedule but because of bullfighter and the lady which was taken away from him when he made it for bat jack and john ford actually took it out i think it was like 120 minutes originally and then it was like 87 minutes by the time john Mm. ford was done with it and it scared the hell out of him he's just thought i want to make sure that that won't happen again so i'm only going to cut on set and like use what I need to. So no, I can add anything or take anything away and it has to play in this order. But the script really, you know, there's so much there. Uh for his role, Burke Kennedy said that anything he wrote, Bedeker could make it better. But Bedeker said anything that, you know, st- it started on the page. So they were a really good team. I love that in this one, that mystery with the backstory for Randall Scott yeah. kind of sets up the other renowned westerns. Um, this is like an enigmatic, mysterious man, maybe less so in tall T, but the rest of them, uh, you find out more about his his you know, this life as it goes on. And I think that's really cool that it takes quite some time for us to figure him out. I mean, you know, by the time you get to like ride lonesome, it takes, I don't know if it was like a half hour. I remember clocking it for us to really know what happened on some of these. And that's a really interesting narrative choice. I think it's very compelling. Yeah, because today it would be like within the first five minutes, or you know, you get that dialogue where someone, well, I have to call my sister because when her husband was away, you know, I slept with him, and you know, they're always speaking in exposition. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I think in uh, in uh, Ride Lonesome, I think it's almost like it's literally like in the last fifteen minutes, I think that you finally get like you the know, let's you know, why yeah. the, the whole yeah. the whole yeah. thing with the hanging tree. It's not you know, it's like it's it's like they really held back and that yes. one. that's one of my favorites that that movie is really uh y- y- and and also kind of breaks some patterns too with the fact that he yeah. that he and pernell, pernell Roberts don't uh come to blows by the end of the movie you think that that's mm-hmm. what's going to happen and then and then they don't and uh you know that's that you know there's lots of uh, there's, that's a really interesting one to me you know because it's mm-hmm. a lot like Seven so from now but they have they have some you know they they the he he chooses to make some different choices with with that, and um, and and uh, Karen Steele' performance, I think, is really great in that movie too. She's, I think she's really, excellent. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. just like it was such a, and she's got such a striking old world look to her. It's really, yeah, she's really yeah. great.
0: Yeah, and Tall T was based on an Elmore Leonard story. I know Elmore Leonard wasn't a huge fan of this, although he's pretty hard on his adaptations. <laughs> he had issues with pretty much most of them. So, uh, but I think this one is a blast. Uh, the Burt Kennedy script is great. Uh, this was the one that really kind of struck me with the framing when I was watching these the yes. first time around. Uh, for you know, just the the shapes and how he does things, and how desolate these were shot in Lone Pine. Which watching these back to back kind of made me like, I want to go all of a sudden, like road yeah. trip. But um, but yeah, Tall T. It's also. Just horrifying in its starkness. Like watching this, I thought, ah, you can see why Clint Eastwood is a fan, a little bit like an unforgiven, you know, because we lose a man and a kid down a well. I mean, we don't see it, it's off screen, but there's like a brutality level. Um, yeah. To some of these films, that is kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, not for Vetticur. Anyone who knows anything about him, he was uh, a bullfighter in Mexico yeah. for a while. Uh, he loved the male camaraderie angle and that idea, and he liked. Uh, he said, you know, even though people were on opposite sides of the tracks or whatever, uh, and Tall T is a movie where the bad guy kind of just wants to hang out with, uh, yeah, you know, Randolph Scott, and who can really blame hey. him?
1: Yeah. Yeah, he kind of falls in love with them in some way. Yeah. you know. Yeah. I, you know, I want. It's funny that you clock like the cinematography, I and mean, that's 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 one of the first things that I noticed because there, as much as I love Seven Men from Now, on, and, and I think that the openings is brilliant framing, and I think that, you know, that there's there's moments in there the the, the upstairs downstairs conversation that they oh, that, that yeah. Gail Russell and and, mm-hmm. and Randall Scott have is so good. There are moments where you can see as a filmmaker, he hasn't figured out some of the traveling stuff. You know, mm-hmm. he, whether it's him or his DP or something like that, early on, it's a little muddy. It's a little, it's like he hasn't quite found the right location. He hasn't quite found like the right rhythm. There's, there's, there's shots you can tell have been optically pushed in or, or, or manipulated somehow and you, he, it feels like he hasn't quite got that thing. He sort of gets it towards, towards the end. And, and there's, there's definitely like highs and lows in there, but yeah, once you get to, to, to tall T, then suddenly it's like right away. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's like all, you know, there's, there's watching, you know, Randall Scott come in, what, taking that kid from, from the, yes. the station man to the, to him. And there's like, it's suddenly it's like, Oh wow. He's he's moving the camera. He's doing lots of stuff. There's lots of cutting within the camera. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really wonderful. I think there's, there's, you know, some really great, um, uh, uh, like you said, there's moments of, 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 um, just, I mean, you start with the kid and the, and the station man, her father at the at the well and then telegraph much yeah so and then you come back and they and, and when you and those, when those guys come out of the shadows of the station when they pull oh, back yeah. up later on it's side. almost like it's a horror of, movie yeah 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 they're on exactly they're, on they're the balanced far side's, yeah 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 the far sides of the frame coming out and it's just it's done like a horror uh mm-hmm. you know scene in, in a way and 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 then the, you know when Rintune gets shot off the thing, it's like he hits the horse and bounces and hits the ground. Like there are some stunts and some action scenes. I mean, I wouldn't say that like when Anthony Mann like does an action scene, it's done more like a Hitchcock where it's where there's like a visual idea, right? That he's trying to you know, that he's trying to do with the action scene. It's all going to be from this person's you know point of view, yeah. and we're all going to hear stuff happening or something like that. And, yeah, you and, see his
0: noir background in Mann.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and but but Bud Bedecker's not like that, but in, but no. what, what he's different is that, that he's in the way that you know, you we talk about like Clint Eastwood lifted stuff, and, and you could see why Clint Eastwood's a fan. You can also see why Martin Scorsese is a fan.
0: Because, oh, gosh, like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm.
1: I was trying to like write down like how many people get shot in the face throughout all <laughs> yes. of but like there's a lot of it's and especially in yeah. Tall T, there's like two people get shot in the face in, mm-hmm. in that movie, yeah. uh, one person gets shot in seven men for now, and it just feels like you know that whole that. It, it it's funny because the opening of of Tall T. I, I love the stuff with the station man and the kid and get me the you know the cherry candy cher- you know all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I think all that stuff's handled really well. When he gets to town and he has to go to the there's like this detour to ten for the the guy named ten forty or ten forty or something where he has to go there and kind of like he's trying to get a bowl and stuff like that. Where there's a lot of pipe and there's a lot of like kind of repeaty stuff about being alone. Where you kind yeah. of see the, and and and. and and because or he's setting not, like, up
0: the married lady because he's always yes. calling like, for married ladies, yeah.
1: yes, yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could kind of see, like, oh, they hadn't, you know, because they'd made, I think they'd made decision at sundown between those two movies. He, he made some, or maybe he made the legs, the legs, no, not the legs, I mean, no, maybe it was legs the was after, kill, yeah, mm-hmm. legs is after. So maybe it was Killer is Loose or one of those movies, but yeah, he made, he, but he made, he kind of went, I think they had. I think they hadn't quite hit on what really works about Randolph Scott, because Randolph Scott's character didn't come in with some, some, you know, a, cl- a cloud over his head. The movie, they, he sort of violated the one rule that they had, which is the start as late in the story as, is, is possible. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, they they have, so they have to go to this thing where you can kind of see them kind of working on how much pipe they want to put into this movie and kind of, you know, putting all this stuff together to get him back in the room. But once once you hit that scene, and it's like the boys in the well, and the you know the father and the boy in the well, and the guys come out of the thing, and you know Rintoon gets shot, and and you get the cinematography, like you said, it's like all really just the framing and everything. It just looks like paintings, and mm-hmm. the movie really takes off after that, and it gets like right into what they do, really great. And Richard Boone, you know, it feels like he's in love with yeah. Randall like he's just mm-hmm. he's and he's trying to prove something to him like he's that the speech that he has later on in the movie where he's talking about like how he never turned a gun you know he never he never you know he, he you know he never turned a gun on on anybody it's, it's always it's always the Henry Silva character or the other the you know mm-hmm. the other uh, guy there they're the ones the kid and Henry Silva are the ones that are um you know shooting people and they've racked up all these deaths and stuff like that and yeah you know, he's really trying uh I love the back and forth between Randall Scott and Richard Boone and all of that dialogue is so well handled. And it's just, I mean, I, you know, I was just writing down all sorts of quotes in here of just, just, just phrases that I love, you know, between those guys that are really, um, they're just really great. Like just really. um, Yeah.
0: It made me want to look up the Elmore Leonard story because I'm sure I read it. I used to have like a book of his Western stories. So I'm sure, um, I think it was called the captives originally. Yeah. But you know, this would also play really well, and I think it was maybe the same year as the 310 Tiuma, uh, mm, yeah, adaptation. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, have, you know, a bad yeah. guy and uh, our main character kind of or a protagonist having this sort of back and forth on in different circumstances, they might have gotten along, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I that their, their back and forth is really great. Um, Maureen O'Sullivan, uh. I, you know the like the, they don't use her a lot like in, in the way that like they use Gail Russell or or Karen Steele or, or Nancy Gates and the other movies they don't use Maureen Sullivan she's sort of a little bit more of a you know she's the, the, this is where the movie starts to talk about her I like where she's like they talk about her. Like, she's homely like they really go like way overboard for like this lady I know like, she's gorgeous teeth.
0: like come on you guys <laughs> yeah, <she's> like,
1: <laughs> be a pharaoh's mom like she's yeah. like yeah she's a really she's 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 beautiful and but yeah, yeah. they really kind of like pile on um with, with all of that but but the moments where um I think the moments between you know Randall Scott and her in the cave I think are really you know they're the, the really well done
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you know, it, and again all these guys they all sort of like, even when these guys are talking about her, they're always like, well, she gives, she can, she can dress a little bit nicer and she'd be great. Like they, they still, they still somehow, <laughs> they still all kind of like love her uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's back to the fact that they're all kind of like, you know, I guess, nagging on her or whatever. But yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think this is a really good one. Yeah. Uh, these were my two favorites actually originally and watching them again although the other two kind of rose in my estimation a bit i think uh ride lonesome on the dvd for the for this one in that box set that sony put out a few years ago um martin scorsese talks about ride lonesome and he kind of like zeroes right in on the burning hanging tree at the end and you can kind of see it as a cross and you see like, oh, of course, Martin Scorsese yeah. is going to love that the symbolism. <laughs> and uh, also Catholic, just, Catholic you know, symbolism. Yes. <laughs> and what this movie is doing with the idea of Western uh, revenge and revenge, uh, you know, actually destroys. And it's a film where yeah. he changes his mind uh, at the end of what he's going to do. And, you know, I think this is probably like, Butterker's John Ford movie. If you say the others yeah. are more like Anthony Mann, Ride Lonesome is maybe his John Ford film a little bit. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. great. I'd never thought about that, but that's awesome. I think it's also you know like it's uh, James Best plays Billy, uh, the guy that he's taking. And I, it's, I think it's funny to look at all of these. Other than Lee Marvin, who you know obviously became a massive movie star, mm-hmm. all of the other guys that are in that mold all became big TV stars in the in the 70s and 80s they're all you know James best was on the Duke's Hazard he was the sheriff mm-hmm. on the Duke's Hazard you got Claude Aikens as Sheriff Lobo Pernell Roberts <laughs> is is uh, trapper John and the trapper John you know TV TV series they, all these guys became these these uh these really big uh uh you know for you know for the 80s and stuff like that they became these really big character uh large enough characters and it's fun it's, it's fun to see them when they're uh, younger and doing this stuff and how good they are. Like just how, you know, the oh, material, yeah. they're all really, you know, the Pernell Robertson in, in, in Ride Lonesome, he's really, he's, 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 he, I, I didn't expect him to be such a, you know, because Lee Marvin was such a high water mark mm-hmm. for me. And and then Richard Boone, you know. So good. Um, yeah, it's so good that to see, you know, Pernell Roberts. You know, again, he's, sometimes they're even giving some of the same lines, and he's it's a different interpretation, yeah. but yeah, and, and you have
0: Van Cleef, you have James yeah, yeah. Coburn, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. James yeah. Coburn in a weird, it's such a weird role for him, it, it seems so out of place, yes, for, for that. And he, and he and I don't know how old he is in that movie, but he that guy always seems like he's 45 years old, so um,
0: <laughs> he was know. born 45, yeah, basically, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but, yeah I mean, but I, you know, the the. They they delay the storytelling of of you know of of his of his backstory, and um I, you know the that that was something I thought was a really interesting choice because because again in seven minutes from now they just they really just very delicately portion it out and here they kind of they 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 wait so much and I thought that was I I I, 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 I liked it uh, because they because again it sort of foregrounds some of his relationships with these other. With these other guys and and you you, you know you uh uh they, they they delay like you know even knowing like what his what his what because because after a while you realize oh uh, he's he's the reason why he's doing the things he's doing is because he wants Levan Van Cleef to show up so mm-hmm. he's like he's you know they're out in the open or they're, they're taking the long way or whatever and i think that stuff is really um really well handled and i think uh, because he doesn't, you know, because again, he's because you know, Randall Scott's kind of a cipher. But the other thing that um, you know, I think was really kind of, you know, that I thought was really um, you know, s- interesting about about that is that um, he's um, when he's um uh, when 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 he's trying to convince Karen Steele that maybe maybe her husband is still alive. And mm-hmm. then, the, and then the, and then the, um, um, the Indians, the Indians arrive. the Native oh, Americans. Oh, with
0: arrived. the horse.
1: Yep. Yeah. And, and it's just like, there's so much in each scene that it's just like, they're, they're setting up these ideas and then almost um, within the scene, they're going all the way to, to, to you know, they, you know, we're, we're going, we're going, to, we're going as extreme as possible from mm-hmm. where we stand in the beginning of the scene to where we end up in, at the end of the scene. And I think that's just. And again, it's just happening so fast, and, and the nothing. There's nothing to waste at all. It's just like boom, the horse. Uh, you know, they, they bring the horse by, and immediately it's like, okay, you know, your husband's dead. He's he spent the, a minute trying to convince her that no, we can go this place. We're gonna go. We're gonna, you know, he's convincing, mm-hmm. you know, the whole crew. We're gonna go this way because we can pick up her husband on the way there, and then and then the, everything's changed after that. It's just that's 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 what I mean when it's like it's such studyable uh writing because it's just like they 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 drop you in as, as late as possible in the story whether it's the story of the whole movie or mm-hmm. whether it's the story of that individual scene and they give you extreme contrast you're an incredible contrast from where you started that scene to where the scene ends and it whips the movie into another direction and then off the races and you wouldn't think that you know that because uh, these movies are very simplistic on the one hand but they're but i think that they're I mean, this. If if you can do that, if you can do that as a writer, if you can do that as a filmmaker, you can do anything. You know, if you can master that, because that's that's the, that's the stuff that to to really simplify it down is the hardest the hardest stuff. It's just like you know, it's like trying to write a short story versus a novel. You know, it's like short story writing. Most most writers will say short story writing is, is harder than than uh, than writing a whole than writing a whole novel <laughs> because the novel can allow you to kind yeah. of go all these different places and fill in where it's, everything's got to be really tight.
0: Yeah, more finite. Um, On the discs for these, uh, Ride Lonesome and Comanche Station, which incidentally were both shot in only 12 days, the least amount of time that he had, the the further in, um, are kind of lumped together analytically by Martin Scorsese on the Ride Lonesome disc and then Clint Eastwood on Comanche Station. And they're kind of going into the films from different sides. Like when we get to uh, Clint, when he's talking about Ride Lonesome and Comanche Station, he's talking about the idea of honor and revenge and what this person stands for and the code. And that was kind of what yeah. was drawing Clinton. And you can kind of see it with his films. And then uh, Scorsese was more talking about the balance of the frame and how by this point uh, he became much more confident in his use of cinemascope and yeah, just yeah. how he was playing with the desolate um, shots and the setting. But when he was talking about Ride Lonesome and Comanche Station and these characters that... Randolph Scott played, who were really haunted and kind of isolated and outsiders um, against the world. He said that he uses Ride Lonesome in particular with some of his actors. Um, and he cited uh, DiCaprio in The Departed as he has mm. them watch this, uh, as you know, you're playing somebody who there's a whole like ocean or backstory and yeah. you're isolated or you're outside, and so he's kind of a, a cowboy character. I mean, Scorsese loves uh, Westerns, and then he cited in the same, I don't know if he showed it to him, but he cited Taxi Driver and Trader and traitor's characters, and you can kind of see uh, you know, especially with some of the religious symbolism, and which Bettecker yeah. denies, of course, but, um, <laughs> you know, just this outsider uh, angle as appealing to Scorsese and so it's kind of cool to see all the filmmakers who love a uh, better and and uh, how many inspired inspired you. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I, I there's something about that code. There's something about uh, his single minded. Wh- wh- uh-huh. where purpose where he sometimes again, he flirts with being unlikable he, because he's such yeah. a cipher. You don't know. You you don't know ent- entirely what he's up to, mm-hmm. and that's you know because because you because you, you can sort of fall in love with all these other characters much easier sometimes than than Randall yeah. Scott. But then when you do find out what's going on behind him, you are so compelled by his his love of his of you know his his wife his, or in, in each of these movies, you know somebody yeah. that somebody that he lost that he loved dearly and. Um, and that, you know, he's still like, in, and that's what I think is really interesting about Comanche Station, where it's like 10 years, where yes. it's 10 years that he's been doing mm-hmm. this. And it's, and it's just this thing where he's just like, you can just imagine, I mean, this is where like, when it's done right, it forces the audience to just sort of, um you know, imagine to be really engaged in the movie in a way where you're creating all of these sort of images and this history mm-hmm. for this guy. But you're, you're going to imagine that this guy for 10 years is just going out there. And every time he hears, about about a you know a woman who's been lost out there he's going yeah. out to try to find him and bring him back and and you know again in some vain search for his wife but i think even i think he even gets her in that last i mean it's, I, I i don't know if it's early in the text but i got this feeling that even he knows that he's not going to ever find his wife like he's oh, just yeah. he,
0: i think so. he's just
1: going to do it and and that twist at the end of that is oh, so yeah it's so great because everyone's I love like, laying... the
0: ending of that film. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Because I mean, because the again, especially when you look at the patterns where it's like, you know, Seven Men from Now handles it great with 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 career where he's like this weak guy, and there's a lot of talk about what a weak man yes. is and ha- half a man and all this stuff. And then you know uh, the the um, uh, Mims, the Willard Mims in in Tall T, and um, there's there's these guys that are you know. Uh, these weak men, and, and then to go to Comanche Station, where it's you know there are there is that dialogue again about about you know well if, if you're you know the fact that your man didn't come out and look for you that that says mm-hmm. something about him and all that kind of thing, and to have that 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 ending is just that's what I you know he's like he's, you know, he's like an M Night Shyamalan guy. Where there's always that, you know, it's, it's it's like it's like the tank, it's the it's the hanging tree, and now we get the story about the hanging tree at the end. Yeah. It's the you know it's the it's the man the, you know, the the station man who didn't go out to go search for his for his wife, and then you find out he's blind. You know, at yes. the end of the movie, and it's just and it's just handled like it's just it just handles so well. It's like it's a shot. It's just you see the wide, and you cut in the close up, and you see him, and you cut back to Randolph Scott, and you see the recognition on yes. his face, and then they have this that two line exchange. And then yeah, he's like, you, you know,
0: never said, well, if you knew my yeah. husband, there'd be a reason he wouldn't come yeah. after. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Perfect.
1: Just, yeah. It's chills. Like, it's just chills. Like, that's the kind of thing where it's like, it's you know, when you just see somebody doing something just so well, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like watching, some, you know, somebody who's a brilliant gymnast or, you know, something like that. where you just see something just executed just so technically brilliantly, emotionally brilliantly, everything about it. It's just, Yeah. Um yeah that's i just get chills thinking about
0: it. Yeah. Are there any other films that he made that you want to recommend people seek out? Any other favorites? I mean I these you know. Yeah.
1: These are my these are my four and I you know like yes. I, I, I think it's like I think you know um I I I think that like Seven from Now is, is probably my favorite. I would say that like Ride Lonesome might be number two, Tall T, and then Comanche Station. Mm-hmm. But like you said, they all kind of like kind of depends. They all yeah. sort of rise and rise and fall, and you know, it kind of just depending on you know, kind of where you're at when you're thinking about them again, especially watching them, kind of almost all, you know, in a run um mm-hmm. uh that was really informative. And I've and I like there's there's parts of Decision at Sundown that I think are good, you know, and Buchanan rides alone. I think there's there's I think there's moments. In, in both of those movies that work it's just mm-hmm. they're not as narratively clean and so they, they it doesn't quite feel the same way I mean there's just something about the, the all of these guys working together you know the the writer the 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 director the DP the producer and the actor all kind of just hitting with these four movies just kind of hitting a sweet spot that I think is really great and that that you know they they alone they don't quite all. They don't. They don't. They don't, They work better together, you mm-hmm. know, than they do alone. And even when you think that's about that's a like,
0: good point, yeah.
1: You know, Bert Kennedy's career, because Bert Kennedy is like is a great. Is a great writer. He wrote other things, and he ended up directing um, a lot I was of gonna movies. Ask, towards, yeah. To,
0: what are some of your you other know, favorites that Kennedy made?
1: Um, I you know I have yet to. I, I, well, first off, I, I probably did not see the Hulk Hogan movie Suburban Commando. That he directed, but his last, but his last movie he directed was *Suburban Commando* with Hulk Hogan, which is crazy, wow. crazy to have the first first career yes. to go. Yeah, Well, yes. <laughs> yes. he's a man of contrast. He loves, yes. he loves contrast, whether it's in his characters or in his life. He loves contrast. You bet. Um, but uh, but no, I actually I recently I uh, or I ordered um, a couple of movies. Uh, I'm waiting for the the Blu-rays to show up. Because I want to dig further into to the films that 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 he did that he, that he directed, because um, some of them he wrote and some of them he didn't. I just kind of want to see, like kind of like where have you seen any of his movies?
0: I can't think of any of. Oh, uh, what's it called? I did see that one, uh, Hanny Calder. That mm, was really that was yeah, I saw that one. that was interesting. It came with an Kim Morgan essay, which I believe is on her website and Kim oh, is wow. always great to yeah, to yeah 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 uh yeah. that one was uh it was an interesting watch. It's been a few years. I think I watched it probably uh, probably film school, but then I okay. got the sent the the disc and I was really just excited to read Kim's essay but yeah yeah, yeah off the top Wait. of. My head,
1: he directed the sequel to um, Magnificent Seven, which I don't think I saw. Or if I saw it when I was really young, but I always wanted to see that because he because he directed that. And then he directed um, Killer Inside Me, which he didn't write, which is based on the Jim Thompson novel. Oh wow,
0: I haven't um, seen that and, version. No,
1: no, I've seen it, nineteen seventy six or so. So, um, and then I think there's a tr- John Wayne movie that's. Yeah, John Wayne, John Wayne movie called The Train Robbers, uh, that he directed but did not. Oh, he did, he wrote that one, so I'm um, that, that's one I wanted to see because I want to see what he did with a Western, you know, with you know, that's not, not connected to somebody, mm-hmm. it's not a sequel or something like that, yeah. He, oh, and he wrote White Hunter Black Heart." the Clinician. I was movie.
0: gonna say, I, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: he's one of the writers on that, which you know, is probably I, I, I,
0: I don't think I ever saw that.
1: No, I don't know that one, um. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, Ruth you know,
0: Ned wow. Beatty. Wow. Okay, we're gonna have to see that one.
1: <laughs> we're coming back, to, and we're gonna do a yeah. Kennedy. Uh, yeah,
0: podcast. there you go. <laughs> we'll make an addendum. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was really a pleasure. Uh, we followed each other for years, but it was nice to sit around and talk movies.
1: Yeah, this is really great. Thank you, Jen. It's wonderful. Yeah.
0: I wanted to close out this episode by giving you an overview of the new renowned Westerns box set released by the Criterion Collection, which the Criterion was kind enough to send my way in order to share with my listeners. It is a gorgeous set. Uh, I was sent the combo pack of 4K, UHD, and Blu-ray And it comes with six discs. Three of them are in ultra-high-def and three in Blu-rays. The Supplements special disc is in Blu-ray. And one of the really cool new special features that you will find on the Supplements disc comes from Farron Smith-Nemi, who is one of our great historians and film writers. She works with Criterion. Often, you can see her interview with Martin Scorsese about the Italian-American documentary that he made about his parents and his college film school experience. And Farron is just a wonderful scholar of film. For this set, she created a 25-minute appreciation of the star of the renowned Westerns, Randolph Scott. And it's wonderful. She chronicles his whole history starring in Roberta, which I had completely forgotten as the love interest of Irene Dunn. It's the one that kind of introduced or kicked off a good partnership there, an early one with uh, Astaire and Rogers. And we see other clips of his Early part of his career before he became the man who was very synonymous with Westerns. In the 50s, as Farron says, he is someone who, if you talk to somebody off the street, like, who do you think of when you think of a Western? People would have probably said Randolph Scott. I mean, today you'd hear John Wayne. You might hear other people like, you know, Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, that kind of thing. Maybe Robert Mitchum a couple times. But here or clint eastwood of course but what's so great about this box set is it celebrates the films that were very popular these were b westerns the renowned westerns and randolph scott who was such a consummate cowboy you know he's well over six feet tall he just has a striking presence he's handsome He can be very soft-spoken or minimal with the dialogue, but he knows when to drive things home with that very elegant diction that he had. The box set includes the films The Tall Tea, Decision at Sundown, Buchanan Rides Alone, Ride Lonesome, and Comanche Station. It is missing one of my favorite renowned Westerns, which is Seven Men From Now, which you heard me discuss with Chris McKay, because that was made for John Wayne's Bat Jack Productions. So the rights are held elsewhere other than Sony. And then Westbound is the other one that is missing from 1958, which was where Randolph Scott asked Bud Butiker to work with Warner Brothers just for that picture. So again, we have pictures for other studios that aren't included in this set. I do encourage you to seek out Seven Men From Now. Buy that one. It is one of my favorite Westerns. Westbound is worth a watch, especially for renowned Western fans. But it isn't as good as the ones that we just discussed in this episode. There are two really good essays in the gorgeous booklet, which is filled with pictures. Here you have an essay by Glenn Kenny, who is a past guest on the podcast. He wrote the book on Goodfellas. His essay is called The Outlaw Variations, The Renowned Western's Finely Drawn Antagonists, which we just discussed in this episode, and they're marvelous. And then there's also a very good historical overview of the Western and what Buddecker and Randolph Scott did in these pictures that was written by Tom Gunning entitled, Some Things a Man Can't Ride Around, Bud Buddecker's Renowned Westerns. So, it is a gorgeous box set. When I put in the first disc of the tall T and ultra high def in my player, I audibly cheered in my house when you first see Randall Scott appear because it was just stunning. I did this even though I was home alone because I'm a big nerd. So, nobody was there with me at the time. I'm sure they would have laughed at me had they been here. And while I was asked online if the picture quality is that much of a difference from the new indicator box set that came out recently. I can't tell you that for sure, because I don't have the indicator box, but these restorations, as I saw them, are majestic. They are really just feast for the eyes and the ears. The great sound coming through the speakers was phenomenal. I have the Bud Butiker Columbia box set from years ago. Now, some of those extra features like introductions with Taylor Hackford and voiceover commentary tracks and Martin Scorsese and some of the critical commentary tracks are actually available on this box set. So it is up to you, of course, if you want to make that upgrade, if you own that collection as well. But if you are someone who's trying to upgrade everything into 4K, and just wants to send a message also to Criterion to please release more Westerns in the collection, then I encourage you to check this out for sure. Next week, we will be back with an episode devoted to Stanley Kubrick with our great returning guest, Bilga Ibiri. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and Filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.